0: This whole realm of you know, decision-making and willpower and discipline, we we all like to think that it's 100% just within our control. And of course, I can control my will and I can be disciplined, I can slip or I can not and I can struggle or maybe I'm not, but it's all my choice. And if you talk to neuroscientists, especially those who have any kind of f- philosophical bent who understand those, those neurophysiological arguments for determinism, you at least have to start in the organic world of the brain. And even with just plain old decision-making, uh, you're, you're going to face some challenges. And, and we've talked uh, many, many, many times about that gap. Like, here's information that comes into my brain. Here's a stimulus I can react, certainly my brain is instantly reacting even before I know it's reacting, but I can pause. You know, if there is anything such as free will, it's in your ability to pump the brakes and assess, you know, that that is what the neocortex does. And so let me me share my screen here and we're gonna start kind of rolling through this PowerPoint. Uh, unfortunately, I had a, a nice little thing for you, a little video I wanted you to watch, but for some reason, it's not playing through Zoom. But th- this is going to, I, I don't know if you read my, my post kind of announcing today, but, but I, I mentioned besides neurophysiology and, and all that stuff, we're going to also talk about moral psychology. And that's because decision-making Always has at least one tentacle there. That's just how our brain codes decisions. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of ramble through two or three basic things and, and try and link them together for a framework for today's discussion. And it is that, you know, first of all, the way our brain works, we we like to carve it up into that the three-tier model, right? Like the reptilian brain or the brain stem, and then you got your limbic system, the emotions, and then you got your neocortex and the cortices. And you know, through evolution, we've gradually expanded. And, and it's an okay model to consider, but it leaves some people thinking that they're just nice, clean parts of the brain. And we op- we, we, you know we do this here and we do this here. And in fact, there are connections between every single layer, every single part of the brain. I mean, even down to just simple little clusters of neurons, there are connections virtually to every other part of the brain. So no behavior, no decision, no thought is necessarily that uniform and clean. Matter of fact, one of the things that I'm really happy that is starting to be discussed is that even though we think like this little six cell layer deep neocortex is what makes us human and we're therefore better than every other animal and we're the only beings that have any sentience or consciousness, all of that is clearly wrong. But we also think like that's where we operate. That's us. You know, I reside right there. And still our cerebellum, our brainstem in that tiny little most primitive part of our brain that just controls things like body temperature and hunger cues and your heart beating even when you're asleep, there is still twice the amount of neuronal density there than everywhere else in in our brain. And even, even as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, there are connections from our retina that controls, you know, light and, and, and you know, darkness, sensory, you know, all the way back into our, our hypothalamus, like everything goes back to that most rudimentary brainstem. Decision making is no different. And so we like to think it's up here and I'm in control, but in fact, we're, yeah, I, I gave you guys that, that illustration that I learned from Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist. And I, I know he was quoting somebody else. And it's like in India, uh, a, a, a jockey of an elephant. So you have this great, like multi, multi ton, 100, 200 ton elephant, and this tiny little 150 pound guy sitting on top. You know, that, that's, that's our neocortex. That's who we think we are. That's the guy steering the elephant, right? How much control do you really think that jockey has over the elephant? That elephant is our brainstem. That elephant is our impulse. We think we're in control until we make a decision that we didn't like. It didn't align with our goals. And then we're in this self-loathing mood. Like, why did I do that? Why can't I control myself? What's wrong with me? I just don't have any willpower. And there are just biological responses that are are just that strong and that difficult to control. But again, our only way to exert that control is to, to stop create that gap of literal awareness, consciousness, and then make a different decision. But I, I, I mentioned the, the morality of decision-making, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to discuss here, uh, but I could not get to it. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with Robert Sapolsky, i mentioned him every now and again. He's a, a, a neuroendocrinologist, uh, had his own lab at Stanford forever, studied primates, specific, specifically baboons for about 40 years phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Um, at at this particular, um, in this particular little snippet of a lecture, he, he talks about a study that I'm going to get into. So he's describing what other researchers at Harvard did. And, and I really liked his description of it, but again, I tried to test it and you guys won't be able to hear the audio. You'll just see his lips moving. So, so something you could catch another time perhaps, but, but, you know, in this thing, you know, titled what makes us a good person, he's talking about decision making. And, and he makes the, the, the connection to this study, where these people are, are you know, given a task, you know, you're going to make this decision. And as long it, 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 and there was a certain result, so that they, they, they got the study, and that was kind of what they told these people to do. And this is one of the reasons I love social psychology is all these experiments are, are set up to trick people. So they, they, they tell these people, this is what you're going to do. Here are these moral dilemmas. You're going to give us these answers, and they answer a certain way. Then they tell them, oh, gosh, wait a second. You know, something was wrong with our recording information, and um, we didn't quite get that. So we, we have this new technology. If you just think the thought, our equipment can pick it up. And so now it's anonymous. Now we're not going to know whether you're saying do the right thing or do the wrong thing or what would you do. Now you can just think it and 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 they think now, these people, that their actual articulated answers aren't there. They weren't registered, really like they say, "Oh, we couldn't hear you. We couldn't hear your answer. Didn't come through. Uh, you know, nobody heard it. Just think it. and And a large majority of people change their responses because we love to lie. It's all about how we look and and we're making these decisions based on on that kind of almost omnipotent narration. You, you guys have heard the phrase, character is who you are when no one's watching character is what you do when nobody's looking. Well, it turns out we're all a bunch of frauds and fakes and liars because as soon as we think nobody's looking like we we often make different decisions. So this goes into our decision-making But like, we're going to obviously be talking about willpower and control and decision making with food and staying aligned with our health values and principles and, and it kind of reminded me of the fact that there are there are people, there's an entire field called moral psychology. And, and you'll probably remember this particular script from a religious text, but but somebody, you know, whose whose belief system was that you are indwelled with God. You, you know, the, the God of his religion indwells you, and therefore you have all of this power, you can resist temptation and You can do the right thing, and you know, you're you're not normal. That's the natural man. You are now the super, supernatural man because you're indwelled by the spirit of God. Then a couple chapters later, he's wailing, saying, Why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why can't I do the things I want to do? And now he's in this very vulnerable, kind of self-deprecating position, saying, This stuff is hard. And one would say, gosh, where where did all that supernatural power come from that you had? You had a direct connection to God who indwells you, and therefore you can't, you know, not do the right thing. And you always, you know, can withstand temptation. And then this guy is in this self-loathing heap, um, you know, of misery having failed. And so, you know, my point to that is even when you think you have, quote, God on your side, you still find these kind of. Challenges difficult, and you're not going to succeed all the time. But there is a way to improve. There is a way to make things a little bit easier. I can get uh, here. So here's here's one. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through two or three different studies, or or a couple studies in one particular book. So Joshua Green is the researcher that Sapolsky was mentioning. And, uh, and, and he's been doing research and writing since the, the mid to late 90s. Uh, very prolific, has, has a ton of stuff out there. But one of the things that his entire career has been about is, is trying to look at when we make decisions, psychologists and philosophers have often tried to dichotomize things like we always do. You know, Everything's gotta be a binary for our little human brains. And so they'll say, okay, there there are easy decisions and hard decisions. An easy decision is, should I eat this cookie or not? A hard decision is like the trolley philosophical experiment. Do I sacrifice one person to save five? You guys may be familiar with that. They'll they'll give this, this is like ethics 101 in college. If a train was coming and it was going to just splatter five people, five people were going to die. But if you push one person onto the tracks, it diverts it and, and he'll die, but you'll save five. So you you will physically murder somebody to save five, or you won't, and you'll let five die. So now you're responsible for one death or five, what are you gonna do? And, and then there are these other experiments, like you're in a, a, a war camp and you know, you get, you're, you're hidden under a house or something, and there are 20 people and your own infant, your baby's crying. And you have to either let the baby cry, and then all 20 of you, including you and your baby, are going to die, or you have to smother your own child to save yourself and 20 other people. What do you do? I asked my wife this question this morning, and she almost threw up and said, Don't, don't, don't say that again. Don't even talk to me. I, I would never be able to do that. So, you know, there again, that like that's a hard decision. There are easy decisions and there are hard decisions. Uh, and then we like to think of them in terms of you know utilitarian versus moral. Utilitarian is should I mow my lawn tonight or tomorrow? You know, moral is something like we just described. You know, should I do the right thing or not? Should I give a sandwich to this homeless person on the corner? So so really really phenomenal stuff. And I'm 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 painting this discussion with this particular brush because we have to moralize, and this is what's going to kind of Throw you a bit. It's it 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 will hopefully shock you. I, some of you may disagree initially. Some of you may be surprised that I would even go here because I like more utilitarian type things. But when we moralize even our easy decisions, we kind of strengthen them. So instead of saying, "Well, it doesn't matter if I eat that cookie or not," it's like who cares? It's not going to change anything. I can just do a little extra cardio or something else that's the kind of person who will fail more times than not, because they're always giving themselves an out. But if you've taken that decision, and you've stashed it into kind of a moral code, like I will not do that, I am committed to this goal, I'm going to be competing in this bodybuilding contest, or I'm doing this for my grandkids, I'm I'm, I'm recovering from a heart attack, and I'm going to get my cholesterol down, whatever your goals are, if you attach something to it that makes that makes it less of a utilitarian easy decision and more of a moral decision, it does add some strength to it. Also, per the study I wanted you to hear from Sapolsky, if there is some accountability, you know, how many times if I'm in the kitchen and my wife is there and I'm supposed to be dieting, would I grab that cookie? Probably not very often, probably never because somebody's watching me. But if I look around the corner and she's gone, and now if I get that cookie and nobody sees me, now it's an easier decision because I, you know, I don't have to feel like I've compromised my values. I, I've I've made it a moral decision. Plus, I've added some accountability. So you guys have heard me talk about, you know, starting Monday, I'm I'm with a an in person training partner, part of our life transformation program. Somebody's moving into town for this immersive experience. And I'm like dead on, like, like Monday, my diet starts, and I've got all these rules and boundaries for myself. And it's because I have some accountability. I could have been doing this all along, you know, but I'm choosing to now because I'm sharing that experience with somebody else. Now, like I said, a lot of us like to think, no, I'm just, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to moralize that decision. But think of this, think of what's right and what's wrong, going back to Joshua Green's book, if you don't moralize decision-making, and this was a long theory, like he has spent a lot of years trying to reverse some of the earlier work by psychologists who said, no, you know, a moral decision is seated inside the limbic system. Like we have these emotions and our hippocampus with memories are, are, you know, controlling all of that. And something else is just automatic and reflexive. And and that's what we want. we want it to be automatic, but, People who really actually achieve that, that's how we define psychopaths. They have no emotions. They have no feelings. They can just make a decision without any feeling whatsoever. So so again, this is just kind of some of the foundational work under where Joshua Green has kind of spent his career and why some of these things really do have tangential links to even our utilitarian decisions. And that's a lot of his research is showing that even when it's something that's very mundane, we, we, will, we will moralize it ourselves and, and that's okay. That's you know, something he wants to be understood. So here's another study that they actually did, which was, you know, again, just quite, quite amazing. They, they had these uh, subjects predict coin flips so you had to like flip it up in the air and call heads or tails and see what it is flip it up in the air call heads or tails and and here's two parts of the study that makes this fascinating they they incentivized it with money so every time you're right you get some money every time you're wrong you don't get the money so it's like okay they're guessing they're trying to guess they're trying to guess they're trying to guess And then they did another one of those things where, you know, it's kind of like the Stanford marshmallow study. Well, you know, I got to go check on something here. You do the next 50 flips on your own and just record your own results. No accountability. Now I can predict heads. Oops, it's tails. Oh, nobody's looking. I'm going to check that off in the heads column because I get paid. Guess how many people start lying their asses off because now they're getting money for it. And so, you know, again, even the most mundane utilitarian decisions still come down to the value we place on it. And so we have to place some heavier value on the decisions that we have, that the outcomes, the goals, if we want to kind of beat our own brain, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the bottom lines here is that. You know, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things I know I should do? Why do I fail? Why do I let myself down? And then we get into all that self-loathing because that's just biology. That's just how we work as organisms. But again, I'm I'm, I'm leaving the punchline to the end where I I tell you, you know, how you can best control that. Um, okay, so I already kind of mentioned that. Um so, so this, this, is, this is kind of where you get to link both sides of this together. Uh, you, you've probably heard me say, I know I've said it even recently, that to make decisions and to make them more effective and stick, we need to make fewer of them, give ourselves less opportunity. So if I'm the person who says, well, I'm a flexible dieter, I'm, you know, I'm, that's, that's my jam. I don't, I don't stick to those stupid, rigid meal plans with all kinds of structure. I'm smart, and I'm, I'm able to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. Well, that means every single day, every single meal, you're making decisions over and over and over and over about what you'll eat and when and how much. Whereas if you make that decision one time, this is my plan. This is what I will do. I will not eat sugar. I will not eat processed food or this or this or this. And I've made that decision one time. Research shows those are the people who have greater success. Now that sounds like a dichotomy to flexibility because we also know if you have rigid thinking then you have a greater chance of failure. You have a greater chance of recidivism. So I'm I'm putting these two opposite truths in front of you. And I'm saying today, you have to put two things that are opposite together and make them both true. Normally we would say, you can't do that. You know, a, a moralistic dogmatic person would say, you can't do that. Truth is truth, but it's not truth is truth in certain contexts, in certain conditions, with certain nuances, and and even in kind of a space-time continuum. And so here's how I think the best way to, to think about this is you should think about, I'm going to make this decision one time, but let's create that flexibility built in. So with my life transformation clients and training partner that I will start working with Monday, I'm saying we're going to have no alcohol, no sugar, no processed foods whatsoever. That's rigid dogmatic dieting, except for our one free meal a week, which has to be together. So now we have that accountability. We're together. We can see, you know, we're going to define those limits and so forth. So I get those things. But it's within these boundaries. And, you know, macronutrients, like, like, for me, I'm probably not going to stick to rigid macros, but I'm not like if, if, if I'm hungry, it's going to be clean whole food stuff. I'm going to have no processed food, no sugar and so forth. So I'm building in some flexibility. You know, he's got 50 or 60 pounds he wants to lose. I've only got 10 or 15 that I can lose. And so I don't need to be quite as strict as he is. And, and I kind of need to feel out with my increased cardio with him and so forth, what my food intake has to be. So I am creating these unbelievably rigid dogmatic rules that are helpful, they're healthful, they align with my goals, but I'm building in some layers of flexibility. So there's kind of a time element and a sequencing to what becomes an automatic decision. An automatic decision is now, you know, all of the peanut butter cookies my wife made this week, I'm I'm not even going to see them on the counter, like they're there, And I used to like peek in there. How many more are left? Like, should I get one now or two? Or should I, you know, hide a couple of them, you know, take them for my pre-workout next week? It's, I'm not even going to look at them. They're not there anymore in my mind because I've made that decision one time. There's no getting out the calculator and app and looking at how many grams of fat are in there. And can I make it fit? And if I add this cookie, what do I have to take out later in the day? You can do that. You can absolutely do that. Flexible dieting Institute. You can do that. I'm choosing not to because I want to make that decision one time. I have committed to a more aggressive pursuit than I normally would with my dieting. I, I have not done a, quote, contest diet in 16 or 17 years. And I'm, I'm kind of ready for that challenge. And so I'm ready to go that deep into it. And I'm ready to hold myself accountable. And I, I just I want to I want to create that greatest foundation for that. So let's, let's look at one more particular study. Um, I think this is the actual one that Sapolsky was quoting. He was a little ambiguous in his description, but I, I looked through all of Joshua's, uh, Joshua Green's work, and this is the one I think that was there, the neural basis of cognitive conflict and control and moral judgment, which again goes down to just the decisions we're going to make. So this is where the subjects, as he said, were presented with these moral dilemmas, and they were asked to say whether this was appropriate, inappropriate like this, this lady, you know, smothered her own baby. Is that appropriate or inappropriate? And then when they said, you know, Hey, we we can't hear you. You can change your opinion. Like they would change it based on, you know, initially they were thinking like, gosh, what's the right answer. What would this researcher want me to say? What's what's going to make me look like a good moral person versus like, what do I really think? And then all of a sudden our, our, you know, presuppositions really came through. But, um, I'm going to I'm going to loop all the way back to what I started with, which is the fact that all of our brain is connected and and we almost can't control because of the way, first of all, we're born, you know, our, our most psychologists, whether you're a behaviorist, a humanist or a psychoanalyst, most of them all concur that a vast majority of our brain is is just born a certain way like that's it's almost 85 percent is the consensus number everybody says so for example um what are they called not not forensic psychologists i guess it is forensic psychologists who who study like serial killers and so forth they they can now just do an mri of a brain and tell you whether that person is a serial killer or not uh, because there's just a pattern, you know, there's just, you know, the, the way the brain is actually wired and hooked up and the parietal lobes are bigger or smaller or this or that. And so we have that hard wiring, we have our conditioning. Uh, we, we you know, the, the reason I always talk about the fact that I'm, I'm like a, a frantic German shepherd just looking for food. And I, I always eat my food faster than everybody else. And I'm, I'm hiding food from my kids and so forth. Because I grew up incredibly poor you know, for, for us to have, to ever go out to eat or have a treat or something was incredibly rare. So, you know, growing up with scarcity, our, our brains aren't even developed all the way until we're in our mid twenties. And then, you know, throw into the mix that I have four siblings to fight, you know, for food over. And if you, if you don't, if you don't eat fast and get seconds, there are, n- there are never going to be seconds. Uh, you, you know, you got to be the first one in the kitchen to make sure you even get lucky charms. Cause if somebody else beats you, you know, to the breakfast table. There may be nothing left. And so at 51 years old, I'm still that guy. Those are all still my behaviors. I'm never going to not be that way, but I can stop. I can recognize that. I can increase that gap. I can say, gosh, am I really making the right decision here? So my attempt to exert free will is by increasing that awareness and, and that, that is still baggage I have to carry into even a, a new pursuit like I'm engaging in Monday. So even when we say, well, okay, I got it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I, I, I create my decisions this way. I'm gonna increase that gap of awareness. I'm going to make sure I create some accountability. I'm gonna make sure I try and make as many decisions as I can very automatic. I'm gonna make them one time and then that's kind of my new norm. Like with all of that stuff, you still have this brain that's like the elephant and you're that little jockey up there trying to steer it, that elephant wants to go a certain way, you're not gonna change it, you're, you're just not. So you have to make sure that you set up every single boundary and parallel that you can that keeps your brain on the track you want it to go. So this is, this is the, the you know, probably summary point that I wanna make is we've always thought that that the best decisions are made with our executive center, the the prefrontal cortex. And this one particular study, this this was kind of the, the end of Sapolsky's comments in that video regarding Joshua Green's study, is that it is the person who thinks less that makes the decision aligned with their goals and makes the best moral decision. So force, I'll use my wife again because she's she is just one of those people who are just super, super disciplined. She has her values and beliefs that guide her, and that creates a morality and, and just a set of decisions that are almost made for her. She has placed her herself in, in, into this position of self-accountability where all, all of these particular social science studies I'm describing, they were all done, uh, a, a big point I failed to mention so far, under uh, functional uh, you know, MRI, you know, under, under functional imaging. So they're literally watching these people, watching their brains as they're making these decisions. And the more time you spent thinking, the more time it's up in your neocortex and you're contemplating, should I lie? Should I not lie? Is this the right thing to do? Is that not the right thing to do? Should I, should I lie about this coin flip to get the money or should I not? The more time you spend thinking about it, the more likely you are to make a bad decision, to make the wrong decision, to make a, a decision against your goals. But if it's just automatic, bam, I don't do that thing, then it... It sinks back up into more of the parietal lobes, which are just automatic reflex behavior. You, you put that back, you know, closer to the reptilian brain, your hippocampus, your limbic system are really controlling it much more so than you having to deliberate through it. So, so all the way back to saying there's there's kind of a moralization to even our utilitarian or easy decisions that are helpful. You make that decision one time. I Joe Klimzeski, don't do that. I do this. That's my decision. Whether it's some kind of a big moral value, personal worldview decision, or because of the context of me being in a goal pursuit with, with health or, or physique sport, that's just simply a decision I've made. And, and then once, once I actually keep it away from the neocortex, which is unbelievably counterintuitive, the better off I am. I've just added more automaticity to that. So as a little summary, um, incentive to make the right decisions are best with some social accountability. Just realize that there's even a moralization to letting other people down. You, you, you guys who are both clients and coaches know this. I've had probably, gosh, two or three coaches in the last week hire me to be their coach. They know, they know this stuff. They don't need a coach. Why would they, why would they hire me to be their coach? they want extra input. They want some extra knowledge. They want some extra perspective, but every single one of them have also said, I want that accountability. If I'm just doing it for me, you know, the, the, the effort meter goes to here. If I'm doing it with somebody else and for somebody else, I'm going to go up to here. And, and that means they, they feel like they're, you know, there's, there's a, that little bit of us that all wants to kind of please our, you know peers or or our superiors we want to we want to be part of that contributing part of the social group that's just huge you you cannot under underestimate that and then of course the incentive or the decision making is best when connected to our limbic system so it's not just in the it's it doesn't just start in the neocortex where there's no emotion it it's it, it's, it goes from there we cognitively make that decision to honor our values and our our emotional investments. And then we can leave it there. So again, the executive center made the decision one time to to, to put it there. And then it becomes much more automatic. And and that just ties into that neuroplasticity where we're grooving in those particular uh, loops, those tracks in our brain. And so it truly does become more automatic. And, And I think we all have things in our life that are like that like you know most of you have restaurants that you don't even go to i i I was talking to a group this week and i said it's like mcdonald's i don't think i've been to mcdonald's in like 25 years 30 years it's like i don't even consider that real food I've, i've been in their kitchens i've done fundraisers where i go in there and i'm like holy crap like i'm just done it's not even on my list now and so that has become one of those decisions that has gone through that process for me to where it's just totally automatic Other places, you know, I I go to a Subway or a Jimmy John's or this or that, and I have these automatic ordering habits, you know, no cheese, no mayonnaise. I'll have the mustard instead, this, that, you know, you guys do the same thing with salads in a restaurant, you know, dressing on the side, no cheese, whatever on the side, you know, and you, and you just use, it's just, it's such a routine. You don't even think about it. So you've, you've taken that and, and it's still, you know, a, a social and moral decision, but it's now become automatic. All right, so let me, uh, let me stop my screen share here and see what you guys think about this. Who's, who's got some questions or comments? Dan, go ahead. That was fantastic,
1: first of all, Joe. That was incredible. Thanks. That, that, that's something else, man. That, that's something we could think about for a couple of months, I think. Uh, but more directly, you kind of alluded to it, but I don't know if you actually uh, made uh, you know made a, a comment on it. Do you think that the uh, a human experience that is built in with a moral code? Meaning that does, I mean, I'm talking, you know, not psycho, uh, sociopaths, but you know, normal, healthy uh, people have a built-in Code where they know intuitively the difference between right and wrong. Uh,
0: it's that's it's an unbelievably great and complex question, and it's a it's a yes and a no for a couple reasons that I think will make it very simple, Dan. Um, because of the you know the, the whole brain experience, our whole consciousness is a neurochemical experience. So, in other words, I can drip dopamine into your brain and you become a different person, you do something different. I can drip oxytocin into your brain, you do something different. I can drip serotonin into your brain, you do something different. All these hormones make us do things. So you can have less just genetically less or more of those. And that makes you a different type of person who is capable or incapable of having empathy or not. But the interesting thing, and I'm going to go back to a study by Joshua Green. And um, and that is that you know, the, the whole because of dopamine, I, I think most people in the neuroscience world realize that's the most powerful hormone because dopamine is, is is what controls the reward system. It makes us do something. And so we're always driving towards something based on how we're applying that dopamine. But a lot of people underestimate oxytocin, which is the hormone that makes us pro-social. It makes us want to bond with people. You know, it, it's what, you know, a baby and a mother, you know, as soon as they look into each other's eyes, their brains flood with oxytocin Two two people who say it was love at first sight, you know, as soon as they looked at each other, uh, you know, boom, oxytocin floods the brain. Uh, you can do this like you can do this with animal studies. You can you can put a rat in a cage and drip, you know, put oxytocin in its you know, nasal passages and it'll fall in love with a duck or something mm-hmm. and want to raise a family with a duck. And so it's like, like like those things are real. So here, here's what evolutionarily we know. We are hardwired for safety and survival. So when I look at a grizzly bear, I don't think, well, that thing is awful cute and cuddly. I want to, I want to go pet it. You know, you automatically fear that until you have reason to believe otherwise. And we do that with each other, you know, babies of all races, Look at other races of people with certain levels of fear or acceptance, and so we are all racist to a degree, I mean we are genetically wired to say that person doesn't look like me whoa I need to figure this out, but this is where we, we can change the game with our own values. Uh, There's this study where they said, okay, here here are people who are just like known racists, like like this, this white person hates black people. This black person hates Asian people and so forth. And we just know that they're in this study because of that. They've articulated that. Then all of a sudden you put a Yankees hat on one and a Red Sox hat on the other. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, I hated you because you're black. But now because you're on my team, I love you. You know, you're a Yankees fan, bro. Bring it on in. We're best friends now. And so we can change our entire moral decision-making because we, we have changed our in-group and out-group bias instantly. So we do have these right and wrong senses, but they're often faulty. We, we absolutely see everything as right and wrong and we see something is right or wrong, but my right and wrong may not be the same as yours. Well, one of the best studies about this in social psychology is uh, there's a guy who wrote this book called the mountain people and the forest people. And in the same country, two different groups that have never had contact for thousands of thousands of years, they just, you know, grew and evolved in totally different social environments and different societies. One group, I, I know I mentioned this before, uh, you know, with, with you guys, what is, is totally altruistic. Like they just love each other. They take care of each other. Everybody's kind. Everything's not, you know, the other group, they're just a bunch of murdering, thieving, like they'll steal the food right out of your mouth. They'll murder your child. Like they just like they're just a violent group. And genetically, they are the same, except that their societies have just developed differently. Sapolsky even noticed this with his baboon troop that he, he studied the same baboons in Africa, the same same troop for like 40 years. And this it, it, there's one particular catastrophic event, where it was a typical baboon structure where the alpha males are always tough and beat everybody else up and they eat first and they, everybody else has to be submissive to them. Well, they, 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 they started eating garbage from this like resort and um, all of the alpha males that eat first, cause they, that's what they do. They bully everybody else out of the way. They all died from food poisoning. And so All of the alpha males instantly through this whole multi-generational culture died. The only ones that were left, the only males were these nice, sweet beta boys, these beta baboons who were all very pro-social. And for the next 10, 20 years, they never evolved back to that that anarchist, autocratic environment. They just stayed a much more pro-social, culturally inclusive troop. And so there was their hardwiring, but it was still completely dependent on who's running the show and what kind of social parameters they gain. So, you know, it's just, you know, our sense of right and wrong is is high. That's what makes us who we are, but it doesn't mean we're right.
1: Also, from from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it's also contextual environmental, meaning that uh, if you go to the extremes you take a look at the guards in uh, the concentration camps uh, some of them had to go home and have nightmares about what they're doing
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and some of them uh, probably blocked out that natural impulse to be kind to another human being for sure uh, to satisfy the boss absolutely. You know? So here's a, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's much more complex than the question, your initial question. I can see the answer. But that makes me think about creating our own environments. And if we're trying to get healthy or to transformation like the fellow you're working with, you're creating an environment that makes it easier for him. I'm assuming it's a guy. Uh, easier for him to make those decisions. Uh, you've already done it. So you know you can do it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but perhaps he never has. So having that social um, pressure uh, makes it much more conducive for him to make the right decisions, whether or not you're there or not. That's what I'm thinking.
0: Yeah. Did, did, did you see The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, the Netflix documentary? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So everybody now knows that Michael Jordan, like you're, 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 you're in awe of how competitive this guy is. Right. At the same time, you can't help but feel sad. Like what a superficial asshole. Like his whole life, the only meaning he has in life is winning or losing. And, and so to me, that makes me feel unbelievably like sick. Sure. But at the same time, he chose to moralize winning and losing every single game, beating the one person he's matched up with, taking that last shot to win the, the, the world championship, mm-hmm. because that's what he wanted to do. So he was able to achieve that because he moralized everything. And that was do or die for him. Whereas somebody else who's not very competitive is like, yeah, I don't, you know, good game. I, you know, we, we, you win some, you lose some, you know? So, so to your point, if I want to be successful in this sport, I've got to make sure for that particular pre-contest or, or not even the sport just to lose weight and regain my health. I, I have to say, man, nothing else matters this much. I am putting this as a number one priority I'm gonna, I'm gonna carve out the bandwidth to make this happen. You can't just be glib about it. It really does have to become a, a, a very you know, deep, intrinsic goal for you. Gotcha, okay, thanks, John. And, and, and to your point, Dan, it's very contextual because other parts of my life I need to say, oh, hey, you know, I, don't, I don't need to make that number one my entire life, it's just for this phase. And I can even dial up and dial down a little bit, but it's, it's my number one priority for now not, not the defining element of my entire arc of life.
1: And I think that's where you hit the, the mark on the flexible diet Institute, because if you take your macros and look at it per week, and this, this is what I do, then unlike what you're doing right now, and even though I'm in contest prep, I can massage today for tomorrow and vice versa and still hit it and still hit the goals and still, uh, live a a somewhat normal life. I say somewhat because, you know, it can't be completely normal. There's no way you can't be the best in the world at anything and be completely normal. No way. It just doesn't happen. Uh, But son of a gun, you can, you can live a a fairly, you know, uh, balanced experience. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another Ted talk. I think I mentioned it this this week where a guy an organizational psychologist talked about the 100% rule Mm -hmm. And, and we often think like, Hey man, if if I just give 98%, like, that's amazing. Like who wouldn't want a 98% on their test or 95%. That's great. I'll take a 95. If I do 95% of the effort, I'll get 95% of the result. I can live with that. But he said, no, no, no. As soon as you give yourself that little caveat, Then all of a sudden it's like you go from a hundred percent, meaning that you have an unbelievably high likelihood like Michael Jordan of achieving your goals to 98%, you go to almost zero. You you now almost have no chance of making your goals because you are not committed to a hundred percent. But again, that's where you get to create the definition of what a hundred percent means. Right. A hundred percent doesn't mean perfection. A hundred percent means I'm gonna build in this level of flexibility and within that range of flexibility, that to me is 100%. That's my definition. And well, so that's a key, key part of it.
1: I think so. And I think that's I think that you know can work in all different contexts. There's no doubt sure. for, for just about anybody. And, and I think one of the main takeaways for me from your talk today is that, and I realize it's looking back now, once you make that decision, it's so much easier, but you have to make that decision. Yep. Too often it's like, I would like to. As opposed to I am. Yeah. Yep. Awesome.
0: yep. You you think you think you're coming to the diet doc for help with nutrition and look look what else we get.
1: Hey, it's all it's all connected, like you said, right?
0: Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Any, any other comments, questions? Roseanne, were you you reaching for your uh, your mute button there?
2: i can chime in this is just all great information thanks again joe for putting this all together it totally uh gives makes my brain ping all over the place but i think that uh like Dan was saying that's my big takeaway too and it's been such a deal breaker in the past and present and moving forward is the decision making and eliminating some of the possibilities that you give yourself uh, like eliminating the deliberating with the decisions and having having just some decisions that are just already made for you like this is what you do and like you you come from you're like me I was raised poor you know I'm one of six kids grew up in their teenage years, we partied, we drank. And the last year and a half, I've decided to eliminate alcohol from my diet totally. And so that's been a big decision. Now we have a family reunion coming up this summer. I'll be around all of them. And your brain goes there. And you, it definitely goes there, but it's like, well, what are my core values? Why did I make this decision? So Absolutely. just wanted to share that.
0: That is perfect. Well said, well said. Kevin, you got anything uh, wise for us here? You're, you're like the uh, the Oz behind the curtain.
2: I'd say no. I'm going to throw you under the bus. But we had McDonald's when I came to help you move. Come on. I up for lunch. You're, Tracy you really? got me a chicken sandwich,
0: yeah. Uh, well, there you and go. And I got exactly. what you got. See? Uh, just like everybody else, I'm a liar. I, I, I will only tell the truth when it's convenient for me. <laughs> just, just, just like Joshua Green showed.
2: We made four up with getting Dairy Queen that evening.
0: Uh, I yeah, I I don't remember that. So I'm still 100% in my mind. And that's what counts.